I'm Joe Devine and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. Today I was joined by Alex Stewart to talk about the quarter-final fixtures uh, in the Champions League ahead of them being played. We go through them game by game and we talk individually about uh, the tactics and some slightly broader topics uh, for each of them. And we were also joined by Simon Harrison for the three games that involve uh, La Liga teams. So that's uh, that was exciting for us. Anyway, without further ado, here's the jazz flute. Enjoy. Okay, we're going to kick this off uh, with the Liverpool-Manchester City tie. There are three other games in the quarterfinals, of course, uh, but they all involve Spanish teams, and we've been promised the attendance of our uh, friend and uh, La Liga expert Simon Harrison shortly, so we thought we'd wait uh, for him to talk about the Spanish team. So let's get going with the all-England affair, the sort of the, 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 the Brexit dream, yeah? <laughs> Not really, but it's the all-England affair. It's Liverpool, Manchester City, and it's, I think uh, this is actually a particularly, uh, not from an Anglo-centric point of view, but this is a particularly interesting game tactically, isn't it, Alex? Because, of course, we've uh, we've already seen matchups between Liverpool and Manchester City this season, most notably the January fixture in which uh, Liverpool beat City 4-3 at a point where no one was beating City. No one even looked like beating City. Uh, so whilst they, you know, they've had a couple of knockbacks in the league recently, um, Liverpool... Of all the English teams, and perhaps of you know all of the all of the teams in Europe so far, have the most evidence to support the fact that they definitely could win this game. Yes, um, I think it's I think it's the most interesting matchup of of the uh, four ties. Um, partly because I think that that you know two of those ties I think are pretty much foregone conclusions. Um, this one is much much more open, and I suspect that. Pep will have had a kind of slightly um, divided attitude towards this. He probably will have thought this is the game that he most wants to avoid because Liverpool will have the confidence that comes from having beaten Manchester City. Mm. At the same time, there's probably a part of him that would like to have got this fixture out of the way before having to um, go on and, and play somebody in the semi-finals because Liverpool potentially pose the biggest... Um, threat to city uh yeah okay well let's talk about why that's the case because uh i I actually missed this game in january from but but what i've uh read about it since and, and when we've spoken about it since it see is it is it as simple as this is it that liverpool pressed incredibly aggressively and had a sort of all or nothing mentality which is reflected in the in the scoreline and that uh forced manchester city into making mistakes is, is it as simple as that yeah, pretty much. Um, and add to that the fact that Liverpool have got a phenomenally exciting forward line with players that are all in extremely good form at the moment. Um, then throw in the fact that, that Liverpool's one massive deficiency, which was at central defence, has been pretty much alleviated by the arrival of Virgil van Dijk. And the fact that, that Karius has started to look like the kind of goalkeeper that Klopp will have thought he was buying. Um, so Liverpool are a, absolutely a stronger proposition than they were at the beginning of the season. Um, and yeah, you need to unsettle City. Um, I mean, they're not... It's very hard to say that City have any particular weaknesses, but if you can 
uh, defend aggressively against them. And that, that, that could be physically aggressively. You could do a kind of Burnley job on them and kind of really clatter into stuff and, and, and mark very, very tightly. Um, but what you actually want to do is aggressively press passing lanes, um, work extremely hard to stop City building from the back and and Liverpool are set up to do that. Klopp's been building them towards this style of football with these kinds of results for the duration of his time in charge of the club. Um, and he now has, I think, a team that really does understand what they're doing in terms of pressing and in terms of pressing more aggressively than than any other side in, in the league. Um, yeah, I think you'd say that they would be a threat to any of those teams in, in the quarterfinals. Not necessarily that they would definitely win, but the way that I, I, I see the Liverpool team, particularly that front three line, is that they could, in theory, beat any of those teams and every team in the quarterfinal round or you know, even in the semifinals, let's say, that they make it past Manchester City would be you know, in some way afraid of, of playing. And I think a lot of that is to do with the pace of players like Sadio Mane and... Uh, and uh, Salah. Most, and Mo Salah, for example... And also, I, I think something you've sort of touched upon here that we don't often talk about because it's not it's not very easy to quantify from a tactical sense is momentum. You know, you talk about the idea that Liverpool are going to come into this game with confidence based on the knowledge that they've beaten Manchester City in the past, right? And that they know how to do it. And you you can see, you know, pick any pick any of the best teams in in the world throughout the history of football, and you will see at times they're in a, in a situation in a fixture against a team which is theoretically much weaker. Uh, but at some point throughout a game, gets the momentum for whatever reason. Perhaps, uh, perhaps the the team who are winning uh, are winning by one goal, and suddenly the the underdogs start to attack a little bit more, and then you get that sort of sense of fear, and things start to go out the window, and people start to make mistakes. That happens to to every team, even the calmest, even the best, and that can definitely happen to Manchester City as well. I think Liverpool are probably one of the few teams uh, left here that could have a, have a great chance at, at sort of. Um, realizing that, you know, I think that's definitely the case. Um, I mean, looking at the fixtures, um, Liverpool are away at Palace in the game before the first leg, which which is Liverpool at home against City. Um, City are away at Everton, so potentially they've got a slightly tougher game there as well. Um, and I think what City are going to want to do is, is I suspect, uh, away from home, City are going to try and match that intensity that Liverpool have and, and press them really aggressively and try and get an advantage that makes Liverpool need to come out and, and attack City almost more even than they usually would in the second leg. Um the one thing that that Liverpool, well, that any team that presses this intensively is vulnerable to is is fatigue, and the lack of concentration that comes with fatigue. So for 180 minutes, absolutely, it's a different it's a different thing, isn't it? To their to their game in January, sort of, you know, there's a massive uh, energy exertion put into that, and it's all over in in 90 minutes, and it's almost you know there's almost a surprise element to it, but trying to manage that same yeah. um, crescendo over 180 minutes is a totally different uh, environment. That's right? true. Um, do you know what I've also just noticed from the fixtures is that both sides have got their derby matches in between the first and second legs. 
<laughs> so so City host United in between the first and second legs and Liverpool travel to Everton in between the first and second legs. It's almost like it's a fix, isn't it? For the, t- <laughs> the TV companies. Just to, just I mean, to create it's something not, but... super exciting. So yeah, I think I think City will um will really go for it in the away leg. Um and and kind of play on the fact that you know potentially Liverpool will just end up too exhausted having to chase the game in the second leg city at home can sit off slightly we do remember of course from last season that that city's issues uh, against psg when they went out were predicated on taking a slightly too passive approach to the game so you know there's the balance to be struck there um but i i mean this this to me is a really intriguing one and and i don't yeah on paper city are the better sides City are the form team, City are running away with the Premier League, blah, 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 Over blah. Over two legs, maybe, City have the advantage, potentially. Potentially, but I would say that of all of the ties, not only is this the most exciting, but you know, probably as a corollary to it, it's the hardest one to call. Um, yeah. And I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Liverpool won over the two legs. And I think if Liverpool um, can unsettle uh, City and and particularly kind of establish um that intangible dominance that comes from you know really attacking and imposing themselves on a game with that confidence with that swagger of having played and if there's a manager that can convince you to do that it's going to be someone like Jurgen Klopp um then uh, you could just see them doing it i mean i think i think the odd thing to say is that against the other sides in europe city have got a better chance than liverpool have um, so if City do win this tie, they will probably go further. Whereas <laughs> if Liverpool win it, I, I think they would. Well, you say that again. What about you know Jurgen Klopp's had a lot of experience in trying to beat Bayern Munich in the past. Uh, well, yeah, through Mainz and then Borussia Dortmund, obviously, but he doesn't have a very good record against them, um, and he also doesn't have a very good record in the um, the final stages of cup competitions. So. It, it, it's really hard to know. I, I think that's what makes this so intriguing is that you've got two very interesting, successful, charismatic coaches. Uh, you've yeah. got very exciting teams, neither of whom will sit back and defend and play in a kind of cagey style like maybe you'll get from some of the other fixtures. Um, you know, this will be two teams that are going hell for leather. Um, over 180 minutes and that's just probably the most cliched Brexit thing I've ever said and I'm really sorry I'm really sorry I've just ruined everything and thankfully uh, we've got our resident uh, La Liga expert our very own Sid Lowe Uh, not Sid Lowe obviously that would be that would be cool wouldn't it it's just Simon Harrison Uh, hello Simon (laughs) how how you doing alright yeah I'm good cheers not too bad. Simon, uh, Simon's agreed to join us uh, to help us talk through the Spanish teams who uh, luckily fill three of the four games as per usual, although maybe that's a bit of a, a drop on recent years. But let's start with uh, Juventus-Real Madrid, uh, which was the feature final from last year. Um, of course, Juventus under Allegri have uh, reached the runners-up position twice already, but they did lose to Real Madrid last year. Uh, Simon, is there any hope that uh, Juve might do some damage against Real Madrid, or are we looking at the you know the same the same team as last year, who's now won eleven championships? Uh, well, it, it's not quite the same. I mean, I mean, last season there was this whole 
mentality around Real Madrid, no matter whether it was in the league, in the Champions League, there was always that sense of they were going to score at some point, even if they were trailing 1-0, if it was still you know tied going into the later stages of games, there was always that feeling that something was going to happen, Ronaldo was going to pop up and score, Sergio Ramos would score from a set piece, something like that, and, and for much of this season that's kind of not been the case. However, in the last month or so, we're starting to see a bit more of potentially the Real Madrid that we saw last season. I mean, Cristiano Ronaldo in 2018 has been by far and away just massive, massive improvements from what he was doing at the tail end of last year. He looks fit, he looks sharp. You've got Gareth Bale, Karen Benzema, they're both back fit and they're playing a little bit better. Lucas Vasquez, of course, doing extremely well. Asensio doing very well. The only real change in terms of form coming into this one is the fact that Isco hasn't really been used. You know, he's not the key man that he was in the run-up to the Champions League last campaign. But, I mean... If, if you'd have asked me maybe two months ago, I would have said that Juventus have got a really good chance of, of knocking out Real Madrid. If you ask me now, I think that they've both got their own merits on their own patches. They can both put up you know, some good resistance at home. Um, but I mean, we, we did see with, with Juventus, they have got a few players that can maybe be got at. It depends what Allegri goes with. But Real Madrid, they're not as frightening as they were last season in the Champions League. However, when you've got someone like Cristiano Ronaldo getting back into form, you've got a lot of options. Uh, Cruz and Modric came back to fitness last week and played against Abar. I mean, everything's kind of clicking into place at a kind of good time for Zidane Zidane because a month or so ago, he was really under pressure. Mm. Well, actually, we've uh, we've put out a couple of uh, videos with yourself writing recently on both Ronaldo and Asensio, and I wanted to ask you about that if if it's likely that they'll both feature in the same team because the the Ronaldo video focused on the evolution of his uh, play at Real Madrid and how he's you know become almost more of a poacher. Maybe that's not you know not the uh, the most romantic way of putting it, but that he's sitting up top more with Benzema. He's doing less work in the creative department, but he's still an incredible striker, predatory striker. So he's still scoring a lot of goals. Are we likely to see Asensio and Ronaldo play together? I think something that we've seen in the last few months, um, we've seen it against Real Sociedad, a couple of the games at the Bernabeu, we saw it against PSG, and that was Zinedine Zidane choosing to go with uh, Lucas Vasquez and Asensio out wide in more of a sort of 4-2-4 kind of formation. Um, And that basically means that with Vasquez out wide, with Asensio out wide, they've got a lot of pace, they can counter, but also these players, they're not afraid to trap back, they are... You know, willing to put the work in to get back and help out their fullbacks, and it essentially takes a lot of the legwork away from the front two. So when you've got Benzema and Ronaldo, you might see Benzema coming a bit deeper to associate with other players. However, with Ronaldo, he can kind of be left to his own devices and do what he does best, which is kind of sniff out the chances. Um, I mean, we saw him. I suppose the first big game where it was kind of noticed that he was playing a much much different role was against Bayern in the last Champions League. Um, where he popped up with a few goals and it was much more of a number nine kind of performance than we would be used to seeing from him before his injury at Euro 2016. So, I mean, I think there's a good chance that we could see it because in a few games where Real Madrid, they've looked good going forward, they've carried a real threat, they've scored a few goals over the last few months, it's been this kind of 4-2-4, 4-4-2 kind of formation. And I mean, that's seen Asensio out wide on the left-hand side, Ronaldo up top with Benzema supporting him. And, and they've looked... That's the best that they've looked. I mean, when they've used this 4-3-3 this season, um, when they've kind of stuck with having Ronaldo and Bale wider and Benzema up top, it's not the same as what it once was. So maybe we could see that Zidane in the past has been criticised, that maybe he just went with the same 11, you know, rain or shine, irrespective of form. But now we're seeing that, you know, when Lucas plays, when Asensio plays, there's a reaction and, and they're playing well and, and there's no reason to not include them on big games again.
Well, just one last thing on, on Madrid then before we talk about Juventus. If Vasquez is playing on the right, where does that leave Gareth Bale? Um, I mean, personally, I would say on the bench, to be honest. I mean, um, Vasquez has shown that he's this season he's been extremely good. It's been his best output in terms of goals, in terms of assists. He's been contributing a lot. Um, he's shown that he's got a bit of cutting edge in terms of what he can do with the ball at his feet. Uh, we obviously saw him combine with Asensio really well against PSG. And and really, he, he's even one of these players that are kind of in the pack that are knocking on the door to have a chance of maybe going to the World Cup. That's how good that he's been this season. With Gareth Bale, I mean, you, you can't really build a team around someone who you can't trust him to be fit. I mean, you, you can't you can't put him in the team just whenever he's coming back from injury and he's not looking too sharp. And even though recently he's popped up with a goal here and there, he's looked a bit better. Um, he has played a little bit more, actually, as a sort of in the front two when Benzema wasn't fit. So potentially we could see um, Ronaldo and Bale starting up front and obviously they've both got legs to get in behind when they want to. Um, Bale has played more centrally for Wales, for his country. So potentially we could see Bale included in that kind of role. We have also seen Bale included deep on the right and deep on the left in different games and, and it kind of seems as though Zidane's trying to find the best way to include him without it being a real shoehorn job where it's kind of to the detriment of everyone else. Yeah. Okay, Alex, let's have a quick chat about uh, Juventus now because we've made a couple of videos about them over the last year or so. The most recent one uh, sort of serialised how they were doing in Serie A this season, which is very well, we should say. And one of the interesting aspects of of that video uh, was that Allegri liked to uh, set Juve up to defend almost quite passively and quite deep. And one of the characteristics we see from Allegri teams often uh, is they would rather sort of prey upon opposition mistakes than, you know, aggressively press. And so I, I'm I'm wondering how that matches up against Real Madrid. I mean, Real Madrid are a team that obviously like to take risks and try to make things happen on the ball. Is that going to play into Juve's hands? How often do Real Madrid lose the ball? Not very often at all. In fact, in the, the Champions League, I was having a look before this, um, Nobody, certainly nobody in the the quarterfinal stage has, um, or who's reached the quarterfinal stage, has given away the ball less either by unsuccessful touches or or actively being dispossessed. So, you know, Madrid are are very competent at keeping the ball. Uh, that that sort of short um, possession based style that they have means that you could have a situation here where you've got one team who are kind of hogging the ball. Uh, and are happy to play it around, and one team that are happy to to fairly passively sit off and and wait and see what happens. I'm not saying that means it's going to be a boring match, but there is certainly stylistically the potential that that you've got, you know, a, a side who who will want to make things happen um, versus a side that are content to, like you say, to they're not a counter attacking side, Juventus particularly it's it's more that what you see in Serie A at the moment is some sides that are pretty relentless in their pressing and pretty aggressive and then other sides that have a kind of almost a confidence in their ability to to do well with the ball in the the smaller periods that they have it um and that they don't feel the need to to get up in the opposition face and and win the ball back and immediately try and then spring a a counter like, uh, say, like a Lazio would do. Um, I, it's an intriguing matchup, like you say. You know, we um, there's been a, a kind of an evolution in the way Juventus have been playing. Um, the acquisition of Matuidi has given them probably a greater degree of dynamism in the midfield area, which has allowed Allegri to play more of a four-three-three 
and it'll be interesting to see if, uh, as, as Simon suggests, um, Real Madrid go for more of a kind of four-two-four formation. Will that will that leave Real Madrid uh, exposed in the kind of the central midfield area where in Matuidi and Kadira, when Kadira's fit, you know, uh, Juve have got two very dynamic, very imposing midfielders and then Pjanic kind of sitting slightly behind them and pulling the strings. Um, I think also you the way that, that Mandzukic is used by Juve is always very, very interesting. Um, and, uh, you know, him him up against Carvajal and also whether it's, you know, it could be Douglas Costa or possibly even Dybala playing in a slightly wider role, pinning back Marcello, you know, how much of of uh, Real Madrid's width going forward is going to be counteracted by the way that, that the Juve front three play. Um, so, you know, it, it's a difficult one to call. I mean, I think, as Simon said, you know, that if you'd looked at this fixture three months ago, you'd probably have said that, that uh, Juve would have enough. Um, I, I suppose my question to Simon really would be, if Juventus can negate Cristiano Ronaldo, do Real Madrid have enough else to be able to get past them and you know obviously he'd be going up against probably Chiellini who's one of the great all-time defenders and and if you can if you can squeeze Ronaldo out of the game do Madrid do enough to threaten otherwise I mean in terms of Ronaldo he's kind of taken more of a a backseat role in terms of creatively he's he's not really you know as involved in that sense and for that reason alone it's kind of Real Madrid are almost comfortable not necessarily involving him all too much when it comes until it comes to you know the business end of the game, um, until it comes down to what happens in the 18-yard box, that kind of thing. That's not to say that he isn't capable of beating players. I mean, he is, but we are seeing now that you know he is prepared to let other players kind of take the slack a little bit more, uh, to trust in his teammates a little bit more. It's not all what he's doing anymore. So in that sense, I mean, he's got a unit that will work around him if they do go with Lucas Vasquez and essentially out wide. That's kind of showing that they're prepared to have those players take the kind of the load off Ronaldo in terms of being expected to do everything himself. And he's kind of now more in a mould where it depends on the service around him and, and whether he can wriggle free. It, it, obviously, Chiellini, we, we saw him in very, very good form against Tottenham. Um, arguably, you know, the, the standout figure from that whole second leg. But at the same time, I mean, Ronaldo, he just seems to pop up in these little... I, I don't know whether it's intuition, whether it's just habit. I don't, I don't know what it is, but... I mean, you saw against PSG some very, very scrappy goals, but he was still there. I mean, he didn't do anything outstanding. He didn't need to. He was just happened to be, sometimes by fortune, sometimes by intuition, just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I mean, you can have Chiellini absolutely on his case for 90% of the game. But I mean, what happens in those other small percentages? I mean, he's bound to get one or two chances. And what we're seeing at the minute is that he's in that kind of form where he'll probably take them. And one thing I was going to say, uh, actually, in response to how you began, Alex, was to compare what you were saying to to the final last year, which sounded very similar. You know, Juventus aren't a counter-attacking team, but they set up, you know, rather passively in that game, and they were punished uh, towards the end. You know, when it came to extra time and when uh, they hadn't quite done enough during 90 minutes, and then they were obviously very, very tired. So, I think uh, I wouldn't be, you know, so surprised to, to see that play out again. Although it would be interesting to see if Allegri maybe uh, tweaks given. Uh, experience of that happening before um, but let's move on to uh, to the next game involving a Spanish team all three but one uh, Sevilla uh, have drawn Bayern Munich Alex uh, you've worked on a couple of videos related to Bayern Munich very recently uh, I believe one of them starts by calling Bayern Munich imperious <laughs> uh, is that the case here? 
Um, to me, this is this is probably a foregone conclusion. I I, I defer to um, Simon knowing far more about Severe than I do, but um, yeah, I've watched Bayern a lot um, in the last you know last month or so because of the work that Tifo have been doing with the Bundesliga. And they are probably the most impressive side that I've seen play regularly, with the exception of Manchester City. Um, They seem to have an ability to shift and react to circumstances. So there's enough. Yeah, they've got enough quality to impose themselves on a game. But should things drift away from them or should the opposition set up in a particular kind of way, there's a flexibility in the way they play that allows them to deal with that. They, they've got in Arturo Vidal, one of the outstanding central midfielders currently playing. They've got James Rodriguez playing in a, a deeper role. Um, and between the two of them, they're able to keep play ticking over, recycle possession. Um, Kimmich out wide has, has been from fullback, but playing so high up the pitch that he's I think he's leading them for assists or or joint for assists uh, in the Bundesliga. Um and in Lewandowski and Müller, you've got two players who, as Simon was saying about Ronaldo, will you know they will pop up, they will get chances. So, well, I think maybe the best way to to go about this then is is to take it over to Simon and say, does Sevilla have a, any chance of being Bayern Munich? If so, how would uh, what would that look like? I really cannot see it happening. I mean, I, I don't even think that Sevilla, they, they shouldn't be at this stage of this tournament, really. I think it's more down to the failings of Manchester United than really what Sevilla did particularly well. Um, in that last game, I mean, I, I could understand Manchester United going to the Ramon sanchez Pijuan and, and it being this kind of threatening and intimidating kind of situation and, and playing for a draw there. I could understand that, but how they played at Old Trafford was just... I, it would suggest that they hadn't really looked into the flaws with Sevilla this season and, and really there's more flaws than there are strengths, I would really say. They have improved, I I think, well, I think they've improved really since Eduardo Brizzo was sacked, um, Monte has come in, but I, th- I think a lot of the positive things have kind of come from him just picking a settled 11 because that's something that Brizzo didn't do. There was too much rotation, it didn't allow for any players to build up any kind of relationships on the on the field really. Um, he didn't know his best team. Montea seems to to know that, um, and really they've got some interesting players going forward. and And I think that will be where they could potentially catch Bayern, you know, off guard. They've got a bit of quality. Um, the likes of well, this season Pablo Sarabia has been absolutely fantastic once again. Um, Joaquin Correa. I mean, we we didn't really see the best of him against Manchester United. We saw some flashes, but he didn't have any cutting edge about him. But he's a very talented player too. Franco Vasquez under Montea, he's improved quite a lot. Ever Benega um, and Steven Nzonzi, both extremely good in central midfield. And and Sevilla, you know, they can mount some counter attacks when you know when there's the opportunity. They can pounce. They can cause problems. They do have some pace going forward. All of these things means that you know they might nick a goal on the break, but I think across 180 minutes they shouldn't really have enough in the tank, um, especially in defensively. Defensively, I mean, um, they've lacked really a first choice right back for most of the season. Um, I mean, you've had uh, Sebastian Korcher has come in, but he's been injured on and off, and he's not really imposed himself too much. Then you've got Gabriel Mercado, who has probably played a little bit better at centre-back than he has on at right-back. They brought Miguel Leon in during the January transfer window. He has had a couple of poor games and a couple of OK games, but he's not really settled down too well. 
Um, and then at centre-back, uh, Clement Longley did really, really well against Manchester United, but all season he, he can be rash, he can make mistakes. Alongside him, Simon Kier, not the quickest, but an intelligent player. And they just lack a bit of pace all across their back four, and I, and I really do worry for them. I think that especially in Germany, they could get completely blown out of the water and shown up for... You know, they are nowhere near a completed article. They are nothing compared to any of the teams left in this competition, I wouldn't say. Well, maybe the positive thing there is that they've uh, saved Manchester United the embarrassment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Of, of having the similar blowout in, in Germany. It sounds like that one's maybe a foregone conclusion, can I say that? I mean, I, I would say so. I, I really can't see. I, I could see maybe Sevilla putting up a fight at home, but I can't see that outweighing what could happen at the Allianz. Okay, well, that's two potentially boring games to start with, then, isn't it? I, I, yeah, it, boring in in different ways. I, th- I think I'd agree with Simon that that it's a foregone conclusion. I, I think you want to look at how Bayern approach this game and how they play because that could give an indication of of the team. You know, I, having watched a lot of these teams on and off, Bayern to me looked the strongest side. Like I say, of any of the teams left apart from Man City. And and I think Bayern possibly have a greater cohesion, a more settled side even than City do um, in terms of how those players play with each other. So uh, it, it could be instructive purely from that perspective, not to see how Sevilla actually get on. I mean, one thing just to quickly add about Sevilla as well, um, in terms of before Montaigne came in, uh, they'd gone about a calendar year without losing at home. Since he's come in, they've, they've conceded five against Real Betis in their local derby. They've conceded five against Atletico Madrid uh, at home as well. That They've lost 2-0 against Valencia. Obviously, Manchester United managed to get away with a point and a nil-nil. So, under Montaigne, I mean, it might be down to the fact that you know, this this eleven that he goes with for the big games, they they're kind of a little bit tired and over the international break, hopefully they'll be able to, you know, get get themselves sorted a little bit. It won't be as intense anymore. Um but that they've not it's you know, at home they'll still they're still gonna put in a better performance than they would away. Their fans are extremely well their their fanbase is brilliant, they're gonna have lots of support, but they're showing that they're a bit leaky at home now too. So, you know, something which would have been, you know, two months ago or so, it would have been a really uh, strong point in their favour that they could make a nuisance of themselves at the Ramon Sanchez-Pichuan. Maybe it won't be the case uh, necessarily in this tie either. So, you know, it it could get embarrassing, I would say, to be honest. I I don't think that Sevilla have got anywhere near enough quality in defence to really stand much of a chance against Bayern. Okay, well, let's move on to, to the next game then. Uh, we've got Barcelona, uh, they've drawn Roma, the first leg uh, is is at home uh, for Barcelona. So uh, Simon, let's start with you. Uh, we've made a couple of videos about Barcelona, we've got one on Messi coming out this week, we've you know looked at Ernesto Valverde before and we've looked at that interesting 4-4-2 that they've been playing at times as well. Um, presumably you would imagine that they, they're going to have the quality to be able to, to get past Roma, is that the way that you see it? Uh, yeah, absolutely, I mean... Even though Barcelona, there aren't a lot of games in which you would label it necessarily a sort of Barcelona masterclass or anything like that, what they can do is minimise mistakes, um, allow opponents to make the mistakes before they do, pounce upon those. I mean, we saw against Chelsea most recently, Barcelona, they didn't need to be particularly fantastic, but they were just what they've been all season. They, They were steady, they were composed tactically, they're very, very good in the Valverde. Um, we can see as things have settled down, um, there's a bit more fluidity at times between you know certain players in attack, and all in all, I mean they're just very malleable. They've got a lot of players that can change games. 
Um, Valverde has shown in terms of making changes himself, having the right judgment, knowing what kind of weaknesses to go and look at and exploit in, in opponents. He's shown that he can do that all season. It's not really mattered who they've played against, whether it's in the Champions League or, or whether it's in La Liga. Consistently, he's shown that he knows the right way to go. Um, and, and I mean, with Lionel Messi in brilliant form, um, Luis Suarez has been brilliant in 2018 as well. You've got Osman Dembele having his first very good game against Chelsea. Felipe Coutinho, he's scored a couple of times recently. He's looking good. I mean, it's it's all very... It's been very consistent for Barcelona. They're still unbeaten in the league. They're closing in on you know a historic record in terms of going for so long in one season unbeaten in, in the Spanish top flight. And it's it's hard to see anybody beating them. Um, it, it doesn't really matter who who you'd put in front of them. It's they're, they're just very very well organised um, tactically. Valverde get everything spot on so far, and and they have. Messi to you know add that flourish in terms of the rest of their team has, has been doing very well. Tostegen, brilliant. Um, Samuel Antiti has been fantastic this season as well. All the way through the spine of the team, Busquets as, as well. All of these players have been performing well. And then when you've got Lionel Messi to to make the difference against teams that are set up and are tough to break down, it, it's almost like a cure all. Messi's presence kind of you know it, it guarantees that you're going to have a few very good chances per game minimum. Yeah, yeah, okay. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? Really that. Uh... Uh, Valverde's done so well in one sense and you mentioned the sort of closing in on the unbeaten record thing there and the idea that they're sort of likely to at least reach the the semi-finals of the Champions League so you can't see anyone beating them it's an interesting idea that this Valverde team uh, which seems slightly more conservative if it's fair to say slightly more reserved than you know Pep Guardiola's uh, tiki taka. It, that it might, it could almost be more successful in a way, or, or as successful in terms of earning top honors. I suppose it's just an example of how there isn't one great, you know, perfect style of, of football, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we've seen a few different things uh, from Barcelona in recent years. Um, I mean, under Luis Enrique, most recently, going to this whole three-four-three, trying things like that, um, people were kind of... Luis Enrique was extremely good during his tenure in terms of winning trophies, but the question became that the fans didn't really kind of enjoy the way that it was being done. Um, It's difficult because managers can be super successful, do really, really well in terms of um, honours, in terms of lifting trophies, and sometimes it's not enough. And I mean, with Valverde, it'll be interesting because, as you've said, I mean, he's he's more conservative, they don't take so many risks. Um, Everything's just been very, very steady and measured, it's not like there's any kind of pioneering football being played, but it's just very composed and... and well, you still they, get the magic of Messi, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, he's got the freedom to, um, to, to you know, act as he sees fit. And I mean, when you're in shackling the, the player that's in the best form in the world, and, and I mean, if people wonder, because obviously um, you hear, obviously, about Barcelona just kind of rattling through the Liga like it's nothing, they're still unbeaten. Uh, you get this idea that La Liga as a whole entity isn't very strong um, but then when you see a game for example if, if people are tuning in against Chelsea and they've not really seen much of Barcelona for, for much of the season you can just see that, that some of the things that, that he's capable of doing it, it's really just frightening um, and, and it, it's not it's not sort of reserved to just that game he's, he's shown that he can do things in big games this season um, a first half performance against Girona very recently which obviously Girona aren't going to you know, match up to some of the teams they're playing against in the Champions League but it's just, it doesn't seem to matter who he plays against when he's just on, on his day. It doesn't necessarily matter who he's playing up against. Mm. OK, Alex. Well, uh, we've heard there a team that uh, Simon can't see being beaten and with uh, probably the best player in the world. Uh, do, Roma, do Roma have any chance? What, what's, your, uh, what's your view of that? 
the uh, well, I think Simon's summary of of Barcelona is is a fair one, and again, it is it's hard to look beyond them winning this tie overall. Roma's issue is that they they play a style which is possession based, is quite unaggressive, um, even with Daniele De Rossi um, playing in midfield. Um, they they're not a passive side, but they're quite happy to play the ball around, not go for for broke in terms of, of throwing players forward to create chances. Um, I think if they're going to stand a chance against Barcelona, they actually need to turn that upside down. Um, they 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 are very good at set pieces in Edin Dzeko, uh, Aerially and Kolarov's dead ball delivery. So. You know, one way that they could look to to do this is to play quite aggressively, throw people forward, try and win free kicks, and exploit dead ball situations. Um, they've got a lot of tall players, um, so that that could work. Also, Kolarov from direct free kicks has been very good this season. It's hard to see if they play in the style that they are used to playing. Um, that they would have enough. I mean, they look weak at fullback. Kolarov has done well going forwards, but he's not very fast anymore um Perez is prone to lapses in concentration um not the best disciplinary record either and and you know having fast attacking players dribbling at either of those would would probably um give me cause for concern if I were in charge of Roma um they still their midfield is very reliant on Nangalan's energy because De Rossi's quite old now. Strootman's never been a particularly dynamic player, although he is a good passer of the ball. And Dzeko is, again, a very strong, very able forward who scored, I think, 13 goals in Serie A. He's their top scorer, both in, in Serie A and also in the Champions League. But, you know, it's hard to see where goals come from otherwise. Um, and if you can keep Dzeko quiet. You know, this this is a team who's kind of, you know, spine or, or who's, some of whose best players are, are former Premier League players, um, who you might yeah, consider a the bit... X-Men City elite. Well, yeah, Dzeko and Kolarov, and also um, Fazio was, was at Spurs for a season, a couple of seasons maybe. So, you know, they're not they're not the sort of team that you, you look at, and, and perhaps um, Alisson in goal and Nangalan in midfield aside, you don't think there are any really, you know, world-class players here. Um and to me, if they if they want to stand a chance against Barcelona, they kind of have to, like I say, take a step away from this fairly patient style they've been playing, go much more direct, look for aerial balls, look to, to use Jacko's height um, and ability in the air to bring in the wide players, Sharaway and Perotti, um, and, and try and get something from a, from a set-piece situation, maybe. But I can't see this going any other way. Okay, uh, well, we've covered all the teams now. Then, uh, before I let you both go, I'm just going to quickly ask you the impossible question of who you think uh, at this point uh, is the most likely uh, winner, not of all the games, just of the competition overall. So, uh, Alex, I know you hate these questions, so I'm going to ask Simon first and give you a little bit of time to think about it. Simon, uh, of the of the eight teams here, uh, who do you think is most likely uh, to win? Well, it's it's a little bit of a tough one for me, given that um, throughout the season I don't really uh, get to see all too much of anything but La Liga. Excuses, so excuses. Um, however, I I would probably say, in terms of when I have seen um, Manchester City this season, they've looked extremely good. 
Um, but I, I think just the fact that Barcelona, I'm, I'm yet to really see them look flustered at any point this season. Um, so it might prove to be that, you know, um, in this tie, potentially, I can't see it happening, but maybe in this tie that would happen. Uh, in the semi-finals, maybe that's when we'd start to see something that's a bit more high stakes and, and that's where you're getting a real, a real fair matchup. Um, but I, I would have to say, for, from the football that I've watched this season, I would have to go with, with Barcelona. I think in terms of the Spanish teams, I, I can't see Sevilla going through this round. Uh, Real Madrid can probably go through, but they'll make hard work of Juventus, I would say. Um, but Barcelona should cruise through, I would, I would suggest. And, and apart from maybe, I've seen some of Manchester City and they've looked extremely good. And it would be great to see a Barcelona against Pep Guardiola sort of uh, occasion. That'd be nice. Um, but I'd say Barcelona. Okay, Alex. Bayern. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Your allegiance to the Bundesliga is admirable. Um, I'm actually, it, it's worse than that. I'd, I've been reading um, Uli Hesse's book on Bayern. Um, I can't remember what it's, now it's coming called. Out. And it's in the other room. But it's very, very good. Um and I've kind of developed this slightly embarrassing affection for them. Um, right. So okay. I, I think... On the basis of an old man's <laughs> book, you believe Bayern, Bayern no, are going to win on, the Champions On the basis League. that I've watched a lot of Bayern and... and hey, and kind sure. Of I was actually, just teasing you. I know you were teasing me. but It's I, okay, you, Alex. You also know I'll rise to it, which is why mm-hmm. you do it. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I think it's interesting. Look, I, I think we're looking at probably... Um, three semi-finalists, all of whom will have uh, the Pep Guardiola imprint on them, um, which is interesting in itself. Um, I, like I say, I probably do still quite fancy Juve to go through. And then I think it does to a degree come down to, um, you know, what the semi-final arrangements are. I, I, I think it's Bayern against Man City in a semi-final would be a shame because I think that would make the most interesting final personally for me um but again tell you what that that is a better question to ask on a tactics podcast is what is the most interesting matchup rather than who (laughs) rather than who's gonna win yeah so i that's an interesting question as as i said before i think liverpool city is is the most interesting tie tactically of these um in terms of producing a match that's that's both tactically interesting and results in a good football match. I think the the kind of the chess sort of game that you might get out of Juve and Real could could be interesting but but not quite in the same way and I think the other two ties are, are too straightforward for the favorite sides to produce something that's tactically that interesting. Um so it all comes down to the semis, doesn't it? And who gets who and who's fit at the time and it's it's a really really hard one to pick, but of all the sides I've watched regularly, Bayern are the one that have impressed me most, apart from Man City. OK, uh, well, we'll come back after the semis then, and we might try and get uh, Mr Simon Harrison to come back as well. That'd be very useful to us. But Simon, uh, Alex, thank you very much for joining me, and uh, we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks very much. Yeah, no problem. Anytime, guys. At American University, we don't just hope for change. We create it. We don't just dream of a better world. We make it a reality. With a graduate degree from AU, you'll access expert faculty and connections throughout D.C. to develop skills and experience to turn your passion into purpose. And that purpose can make all the difference in your career. Discover the difference a degree makes at American.edu slash gradschool.